0: The idea of autonomous humanoid robots might make you a little uncomfortable. After all, the thing could end up taking your job one day. And if it's its own kind of life form, there are a lot of weird ethical questions that start flying around pretty fast. I suppose if you want to avoid all that, you just ship them off to work in space. I mean, they've got the three laws. That ought to be enough. Of course, if any problems come up, we've got experts at the ready. On this episode, we take a look at the hilarious misadventures of Greg Powell and Mike Donovan. We'll take a deep dive on the three laws of robotics and talk about the ways that the laws themselves sometimes take a dive. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov.
1: Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Stephanie Younger.
0: I'm Jacob Younger, And I'm Jason Stark. I'm a seasoned reader of Asimov sci-fi novels. Jacob and Stephanie are newcomers, and together we are going to dive in and investigate the themes and meanings of these books and look at their relevance for today.
1: Did you enjoy reading this week's stories?
0: Oh, yes. I read them several times through in order to get a good feel for them. How about you?
1: I really like the characters of Greg and Mike. I thought them... They were really interesting, but also really funny.
0: You got to wonder like, what the secret life of tech support people is actually like, because when something goes wrong with your technology, you got to call people in to come fix it.
1: Yeah, and it's probably not this exciting or life and death.
2: Are or humorous. These, are these two like the superheroes of the IT world then?
1: I don't think anyone's a superhero of the IT world. I don't know,
0: but I don't know about you, but whenever I read books, I try to put like famous faces on people because it's just more entertaining that way. And I couldn't help but do (laughs) Robert Downey Jr. as Greg Powell. And uh, who played Captain America?
1: Chris Evans. Chris Chris Evans.
0: And him as Mike Donovan. Chris Evans. I was just watching them in in these stories run around and bumble. Trying to fix these problems, so.
1: You didn't go for uh, Bruce Banner and Iron Man together?
0: No, no. Bruce Banner's too chill. Okay. Well, without further ado, we are going to jump right in and do a recap of these stories if you are coming in and listening to this without having read the material. Although, of course, we do encourage you to read along with us and to... Follow along from episode to episode so that you can discuss it and offer comment of your own. We want to hear from you, but uh, we're going to get now into a synopsis and Jacob will take us away.
2: So today we're going to be looking at three chapters in this episode, Run Around, Reason, and Catch That Rabbit, which I believe is chapters two, three, and four. Uh, So Runaround opens up in an eerie, abandoned, futuristic space station on Mercury. Um, And this is where we meet Mike Donovan and Greg Powell. Uh, One is an intellect among among intellectuals, and the other has a wild personality really there to make money. Uh, Their job is to come in and test out new robots on the field and get them ready for other engineers to operate them. This story starts in the middle of a crisis that we don't have any time to breathe before we find out that Mike and Greg's robot, which was sent on a mission, Speedy, to go collect some selenium, which is the power source for the station needed for life support, he's already gotten stuck in a loop and is not bringing back any selenium. We're gonna die. Welcome to Mercury. Uh, Greg and Mike kind of argue back and forth somewhat satirically on how to solve this life-threatening logic problem. And they introduced the infamous three laws of robotics. You already know the laws of robotics, don't you?
1: Well, the first law is that a robot cannot harm a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to be harmed.
0: The second law is that a robot must obey orders given it by humans, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law is that robot must protect itself under any
2: circumstance unless it conflicts with the first two laws. So what we find is Speedy, later on in this logic problem, Speedy is caught between the second and third law. On his mission, he was given an order second law, to go get selenium, but third law, he finds himself
0: getting too close to a dangerous field. It's important to mention here that his third law potential, because he's an expensive robot, his third law potential has been increased, so that he is more prone to protect himself, and so he is put into a dangerous situation.
2: Because the third law, lo- the third law is increased, he wants to protect himself more than normal, which butts heads with the "I have to go get selenium because I was told to." Um, and that's where that's the loop we find ourselves in—the runaround. Mike and Greg go through a whole myriad of options of how to break him out of this loop. And in a funny way, we also hear Speedy breaking down over the radio because he's just at such odds between these laws that his even his physical frame is starting to break down. Greg and Mike find that the only way to break him out of the second, third law tension is by putting the first law to the test. One runs out into the open of Mercury's hot sun, putting his life on the line until Speedy snaps out of it and saves his life. Reason The second of these three stories, Reason opens with Powell and Donovan on a new space station, an asteroid that sends energy beams to multiple planets that are all inhabited. Um, And these beams of energy kind of supply that planet with um, life-sustaining energy. So it's a very important job. But now they're testing out a new model of robot, Cutie, that is to oversee other robots, kind of like a manager in a retail store. The issue is this robot has a higher sense of logic than other robots, because the managerial status, and begins to reason to himself that maybe Mike and Greg aren't sophisticated enough beings to create me, or the master. The master robot is the engine that's sending out beams and is powering the whole station, and cutie tends to slowly develop this religious fervor for following the master and sees Greg and Mike as lower beings than himself. Uh, Greg and Mike try to convince him otherwise that Cutie was created by humans and that the the Master is just an engine that humans created, but nothing really works. And after a few back and forths and arguments and, and attempts to even shut down some of the robots from worshiping the Master, Cutie locks Greg and Mike away to protect them from hurting themselves or hurting the Master. Now this life-threatening scenario is not that they're locked away because Cutie doesn't really have any outright intentions to kill or murder or maim or anything like that. His first law is still pretty strong, but this time a storm is brewing that could intersect with the beams that are going out to other planets and send those beams a little off course and then cause destructive chaos on all of those planets those beams are being sent out to. Greg and Mike are at it again arguing, wrestling, how do we convince this robot that we, man, are actually the superior race here? And they can't find a way to do it. And they know the storm is coming, and all they can do is rest their heads and let it happen. The next morning, to their surprise, they find that Cutie has maintained the beams through the storm, which is their job. But he did it by way of his religious fervor for the master, because he wants to keep all the dials where the master says to keep them. Whereas, Greg and Mike want to do it because they don't want planets to be destroyed. The third story, and the last one we'll be covering today, is Catch That Rabbit. Donovan and Powell are testing out a new robot, which is considered a multiple robot. This one's name's Dave. And this one is less like a manager, and he actually has direct control over five other robots. Kind of like, uh, they're called subsidiary fingers. Dave would be the palm and he's got five fingers. And this time they're on a mining asteroid, so they're not sending beams out, they're mining. And one day Dave and all of the robots, who seem to be functioning perfectly, come back with little to no ore at all. And they can't find out why that these robots are coming back completely useless or or without any kind of product to show for a whole day's work. And a look at the cameras tells us Apparently, once no one's watching, all five of these robots, including Dave, stop mining ore and just go right into marching and dancing. And Donovan thinks this is something really sinister going on, that they're going to overthrow the world. Every time they try to approach Dave or the fingers about this dance or marching, none of them can remember what's going on. And the robots also stop whatever's going on the moment Mike or... Greg show up. So, they have a hard time wrestling with, how do we solve this issue? Eventually, they try to catch him in the middle of it by (laughs) detonating a little bit of a cave-in and starting their own issue. Not to harm the robots, but to get them started so they can watch what's going on. And just like in Greg and Mike fashion, they accidentally cave themselves in instead. Greg gets the idea to shoot one of the fingers from Dave's control And lo and behold, that works. And we find out later it's because Dave was actually overstimulated, overworked by having so much control over so many robots all at once. And you can see that in all three of these stories that Greg and Mike solve these issues almost by accident each time.
0: So you get through reading these, and you kind of want to say to yourself, ba bop or something, <laughs> right? I don't know. It was kind of like it was kind of like Abbott and Costello in space, maybe. Abbott and Costello meet, meet the religious robot, or something like that. They're funny, and they're dated, like everything in this book, you know. So it's kind of got this certain style to it. I want to get into some of the lore of the of the story, like of of the universe, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. There's been a backlash against robots actually being on Earth. It's assumed that that a humanoid talking robot will eventually take people's jobs and people think, well, it doesn't have a soul, so it's this weird thing that we don't want around us. So the options for U.S. robots are limited, and they start shipping off robots to outer space to work in different environments. We have this picture of planetary colonization and energy production, which is really cool. I mean, we hear sometimes, I've heard about the idea of solar energy collection stations that mm-hmm. are in space and that transmit that energy to Earth. You know, I've, I've heard about this sort of thing before, and we can see that Asimov is already writing about ideas like that all the way back then. And so this is interesting. It is kind of like some of the science doesn't really hold up quite so much anymore. Like if the if the beam of energy like got distorted or thrown off course or something, it wouldn't cause like this catastrophic damage they're saying in the story or things like that. So, I mean, there are things that are a little bit off in terms of that, but the idea is pretty creative, especially oh, yeah. because it's a, it's an idea that's had some staying power, although it at this point is highly impractical still mm-hmm. to actually make that work
2: what shooting laser beams through space is impractical
0: yeah when i first heard about it i did say to myself how on earth does this even work well right? not on earth but then now <laughs> if you have the right uh, technology you can just set your phone onto a surface and it will charge it so we're That's getting there right
2: i i don't want to see a death star
0: but i also kind of want to see a death star
2: come on jake
0: and then we also have um this whole Developing picture of positronic brains. We get little mention of it in Robbie the previous material, but now these three chapters will really, really dig into the prospect of a positronic brain.
1: Yes, please explain the positronic brain to me because I yeah. don't get it.
0: Sure, yeah, and and admittedly, it is this amorphous kind of kind of thing because it's not explained fully in this book, but. Um, it's described as a spongy globe with a platinum casing about the size of a human brain, um weighs about ten pounds, and contains a few quintillions of positrons. Woohoo. Someone asked me what is a positron? I guess I could ask you what a positron is. Well, so glad you asked. yeah, <laughs> because um you no, know, what a positron is is it's the antiparticle to an electron. It's been what? also called. So it's like an anti-electron. Okay, we're talking like matter-antimatter here. Uh-huh. So you have an electron, and then you have a positron, which is an electron's antiparticle. So um, these—this is real. This is real stuff. Okay, and actually, oh, so I was going to say real.
1: I've only taken high school physics.
0: Well, I oh, I thought we were making up fun words. I was totally... <laughs> no. Positron is positron's a real thing. Okay. Um, positrons are actually utilized in what are called PET scans, and that stands for positron emission tomography. And what happens there is that electrons and positrons are, are, are brought into contact with one another. And when that happens, like annihilation occurs between them and gamma rays are the result. And so different imaging scanners and things use different wavelengths to create the imaging that they do. And gamma rays are what are used in PET scans to create the imaging. And so when you think about it, this brain is supposed to be filled with positrons, which if they come into contact with electrons, like there is destruction, which happens. And so that's interesting to consider how you would actually maintain such a a mechanism without it essentially self-destructing. I'm assuming there's got to be some sort of electromagnetic containment that keeps the positrons from interacting with the natural electrons which occur in just the atoms of the physical material of the brain. Otherwise, as soon as the positrons would come into contact with the normal matter, the brain would just be toast, right? Now, my expertise in (laughs) the
2: Hulk tells me gamma rays will turn me into a superhuman.
1: No.
0: Well, I mean, you could... (laughs) Well, let's go to the hospital and find out. You'd probably die. (laughs) And also, the positronic brain, as it's presented, is presented in these chapters as being rather inscrutable, is one of the words that's used. It should work by the book, but it often doesn't. Uh, There's also a lack of knowledge about how these positronic fields, in the case with Dave, is how he's controlling these fingers, how they actually work as well.
1: Of course we're using technology we don't understand. That is just our M.O.,
2: Oh, yeah, we totally gave up on trying to understand it as consumers decades ago. So I think that's right on with Isaac Asimov.
0: So here's the thing all this sounds very fanciful, but the reason that the positronic brain came into being as a concept is because it sounded cool. You know, that's really the only reason.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Did he know that? Did we know that positrons were a thing in 1950?
0: Yes, yes, they were. They were a discovered thing by then. But really, Asimov just said, well, that sounds a lot cooler than electronic. It sounds futuristic. So we're just gonna say positronic. So there's a reason why this is a mortifice. It is a literary device. It's a it's a plot device that it's it's intended to sound sound yeah, high tech.
1: I'm, I'm I'm far more comfortable with plot devices than with physics.
2: So am I a reader who is learning about positrons, apparently, supposed to think of the positronic brain as a real positronic brain, or am I supposed to give up on that real quick?
0: I think that the moment we try to translate this into something that could be real, I think we're seeing more and more these days that technologically speaking, it's not that viable of a concept. And artificial intelligence is already taking paths and going down paths. It's it's just not going that way. And I think that kind of speaks to the fact that Asimov was really great at asking big questions and had really cool visions of things, but also he couldn't foresee things like the era of digital technology.
1: Well, I don't think anybody really did until suddenly it was there.
0: Right. And
2: so, as I, I as a reader, should not investigate too much into positronic brains. Like,
1: Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't think you should get more invested in the storyline.
2: I was
0: hoping to have some sort of secret knowledge. Okay. So as far as the big things, like the big topics to talk about in these chapters, the biggest one has to be our three laws of robotics. Yes. We covered them in the synopsis, but just to break them down one more time, a robot can't hurt a person or allow harm, has to follow orders, except if it would involve hurting someone, and has to defend itself unless it would involve not following orders or hurting someone. So it's this check against robots getting out of control. Basically, it's the purpose. Uh, the purpose of them is to prevent human harm and robot rebellion. Basically,
1: yeah. Um, I guess my immediate question about the laws would be: How are you defining harm? How are you defining orders? How are you defining? Because, like, if you think about the um, the fairy tales of like genies, they have to follow orders but they follow them very literally. So oh, yeah, yeah. Do we be get careful like a situation here?
0: Yeah, I think that that the real question that these stories raise, on the one hand, are the laws realistic? And we're going to, over the course of not just this episode, but other episodes, we're going to be discussing that more and more. Over the years, Asimov also was quick to say that he understood the three laws to be something that didn't actually really work you know he Hmm. wasn't making these up in order to posit them as a realistic way forward for programming robots to live among human beings Hmm. again they are a literary device and so what we're dealing with is we get an opportunity in these stories to look at the ways that these robots malfunction and we get really in some cases like mirrors of human behavior and human activity, and so we can kind of analyze aspects of humanity and ask questions about really ourselves. Hmm. So I think like the positronic brain, we kind of have to take the whole idea of the three laws with this grain of salt Mm -hmm. and, and enjoy it for its literary quality rather than think about it in terms of its realism. There have been plenty of articles out there that have been written I don't mean like scholarly articles I mean like you can like go google it or something but about how the three laws really just they just don't work you don't really need them
1: Oh so I have a question then So as far as the three laws go then why choose those three laws to base your sci-fi universe on like why would those be the three laws for your robots if you know they're not going to actually contain the robots
0: Well there is the question of when he started saying that Yeah, I know the three laws don't work. Sure, I knew it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) As in like someone who's covering his own tracks? You know, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing is like, this is something that's come up in what about a century ago was called the New Criticism. Mm -hmm. And it was a response against like the romantic movement where people were trying to look at the journals and letters of great poets and things and try to understand exactly what they felt when they wrote that wonderful poem that I love so much. And the new criticism, one of the things about it was it brought up the idea of the intentional fallacy and Mm -hmm. how you can't just look at people's journals and letters and interviews with them and things and automatically say, just because that's what they're interpreting now after the fact, that that is what they were meaning exactly at that time. Sometimes we come back later in our minds and we have memories that have changed or mm-hmm. kind of kind of gone off track or off kilter a little bit. Yeah. And so I'm I'm not saying that to just be suspicious of Isaac Asimov, but I do wonder sometimes like, you know, did you always knew know that they didn't work? I mean, they seem logical enough, mm-hmm. but did you always have this sense that they were just going to be made to be broken essentially?
1: I think I would guess that those are the laws because those seem like fairly basic human instinct. You know, like, don't murder other people and, you know, try not to let them get hurt. Uh, What's the second one? Obey orders. I mean, listen to your parents, maybe. Listen to your parents. And then the third one is don't let yourself be harmed. Like, those are fairly basic human instincts when we live in community.
2: Yeah, I think about, and we might get into this more later, but I think the three laws were chosen, and I need to, I don't want to put words in the mouth of Isaac Asimov, but I think they were chosen because, yeah, most worldviews and religions and even, like, political systems have, when you boil them down really, really far, one of these three ethics. Hmm. That, that's what I think. So I think what he's doing is as as a part of this is having a fun time poking holes and, and running around and, and asking bigger questions and is our ethic enough kind of thing.
1: Well, that reminds me of... Um... Talking And again, talking about like narrative criticism with Jason and thinking that the meaning of things often lies somewhere between what the author wrote and what they thought that they wrote and kind of what comes out. And between what the reader thinks they read and kind of what comes out in some sort of amalgamation of us both bumbling together into meaning, which is why you can get such a broad range of interpretation when you're reading things.
0: So let's dive into how the laws are operating or how maybe how badly they're operating in these three <laughs> different stories because these stories what they're doing is they're showing like the weakness of these concrete laws when they're placed into fluid situations. It's the complexities of the problems that are faced in these stories that are going to lead to these unexpected little twists The the laws are like a theoretical construct, right? And they're simple enough. But the fact that we have these robots with positronic brains that are hard to understand, and then you place those robots into situations that have a lot of unknown variables, that's when things kind of start to go haywire. Haywire, that's hilarious. Because they're made with real wires. (laughs) So, So what's this first one in Runaround that we run into? We have this interplay between laws two and three, but it's not quite the same interplay. I don't know if this is a fair test of the three laws, because it is said right there in the story that third law potential has been increased for Speedy. He has been designed to protect himself to a higher degree than other robots would because he is um, because he's more expensive and more technologically advanced. So they've programmed him to protect his existence more than your average robot.
1: So, wait, clarifying question. So normally, rule one has the most weight, rule two has the second most weight, and rule three has the least amount of weight? Yes. Yes. Okay, so they have tweaked speedy then so that two and three have about the same amount of weight.
0: Hard to tell how much weight each one has relative to the other. But that's the thing, is that this issue with the selenium pool, it's not just that the selenium is dangerous. It's like a volcanically active region on Mercury, which there is a lot of like carbon monoxide being produced, and that's dangerous to Speedy. And so because Mike did not order Speedy with enough force to go get the selenium at all costs, the the Rule 2 potential... Is weak in this case, and the rule three potential is higher, and so they're balancing out. It's like they've been brought to this equilibrium instead of being um, rule three being subordinated to rule two,
2: which is the run around as he gets closer. Rule three gets stronger as he goes further. Rule two gets
0: stronger, and then mm-hmm.
1: circles. And he doesn't have the capacity to just make a decision.
0: No, that is that is the issue because he's bound to obey instructions. And And he's bound? bound to protect himself. But he doesn't seem to have the capacity to nuance those responsibilities, to nuance those bindings, and understand. Like in the last episode, we talked about letter of the law and spirit of the law. Speedy doesn't seem to have the ability to do that. So they have to force the issue by introducing rule one potential, which is still stronger than the other two. Yeah once greg is in danger that is what breaks that cycle
2: the very 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 strong rule one kind of has to get broken which is funny because he even has an issue with the really old robots
0: yeah and i do such
2: a strong rule one potential
0: and we do want to mention that there are other robots in this story who are at the mercury mines and have been there for like a decade because the first mission failed and they left these robots behind there's this interesting um commentary by Mike that he just wishes that, you know, why do they have to make all these complicated robots that just get messed up? And can't they just stick to ordinary old robots? And I think that is what comes around in Catch That Rabbit is where that comes around. But I think it brings up this theme of what does it mean to have just simple, good old-fashioned technology what does that even mean? You know, because to, to the previous generation, it wasn't simple, good old fashioned technology, but um, the, what does,
2: what does reliable mean? And at what point it's, it seems like he's sitting on a norm of technology and technology is always moving forward, but it's funny because every generation has a place they call the norm, the foundation of, Oh, this was, this is when technology was reliable. This is when technology was solid.
1: And just this longing for kind of yesteryear, like thinking that it it was better then. But you know what? Even if you had an ox and a plow, the ox can die, the plow can break, you know, raiding huns can come in and take all of your (laughs) stuff. Like technology is still not reliable, even with the simplest things.
0: And so these robots, they're very interesting because they have standard three laws they are primitive compared to speedy, but there's this little tweak where they can't go anywhere unless they have a human being riding on top of them. And the issue is that yee-haw robots right. It's yeah, robot rodeo. It's this situation where apparently they wanted to work in this really strong servant complex into these robots. And in order to do that, they made it so that the human had to be on the robot, riding the robot at all times, commanding it because of sentiments that robots could get out of control. And so in order to remedy that, robots were made that could be fully controlled and submissive in this way. So, And that leads to its own problems, too, because they just want to send the robot out to get speedy or to get the selenium. But the robot can't do it unless someone is riding on their back, and that's going to expose them to the radiation of the sun, which could kill them. And so, here again, we have these issues with letter of the law and spirit of the law. Like, you just, you can't explain to these things, well, no, no, no. You have to understand it in this way, because the three laws are so rigidly impressioned upon them that they can't, they can't act otherwise.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they can't move around those laws or, or even rationalize. Like with Speedy, he can't even begin to rationalize. All right, the best way to protect myself is indeed following the second law or there's a possibility of be, me being melted down or changed or that somehow the human people will alter me.
2: Don't you find it funny he doesn't even go back to ask like, hey, boss, I have this issue.
1: Well, because he doesn't have, we were talking last time about metacognition. He doesn't have this metacognition, this ability to th- say, okay, there's a problem. How do I solve the problem? He's just stuck. He's
0: which like, is which is weird because he does have the ability to sing Gilbert and Sullivan, though. Because yeah. that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, <laughs> Is he drunk? Right. That's um, the thing is, is that we didn't mention it in the synopsis, but he is, when they approach him for the first time, he's singing Gilbert and Sullivan and feels and is acting as though he were intoxicated. Interesting little tidbit that is actually picked up in Star Trek insurrection in uh, really, well, kind of, kind of, there's this moment where at the beginning of the movie data has this ethical quandary of something that, that the enterprise crew has been sent to do or Starfleet has been sent to do. And he kind of, he kind of loses it and begins to attack his own Starfleet fellow officers, hmm. and he hijacks a shuttlecraft. And when they try to contact him over the radio, he's singing Gilbert and Sullivan.
1: Which, okay, the only Gilbert and Sullivan play that I know is Pirates of Penzance.
0: Yeah, I think he's singing from HMS Pinafore. That, I'm not That's sure. That's hilarious. <laughs> so um, anyway, little, I think that might be a little homage right there in Star <laughs> Trek Insurrection to this particular little moment. But then the question is, what does this represent? you know when we're looking at this robot who has this quandary that is basically insoluble how mm-hmm. can you how can we relate that over what over to what human beings actually experience in anxiety. their lives
1: anxiety like that was the first place that Jacob went the oh, other yeah. day sorry for stealing this from you but you were reading this and you were like this is just like human anxiety because you get stuck in this um
2: can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. Can't and it's do this, just can't this
1: devolving spiral of yeah. stuckness. And that's really okay. You're going to help me out with the psychology, right? Hopefully. It's like a, a lower brain function where you're just stuck in your instincts. And one of the ways to get out of a panic attack is to start thinking. So, with like, your
2: higher metacognition. Yeah.
1: So sometimes, if Jacob's having a panic attack, I'll ask him a weird question about. Can you explain to me this word? And it like jumpstarts him out of that.
2: Which I hate that habit, but it's true.
1: Yeah, it makes him very angry. Yeah,
2: this is where my that's that's where my brain went. Where I'm basically watching a robot going into a panic attack, and I thought it was very interesting that they said he sounded drunk because. Sometimes in, with anxiety responses, people will curl into a ball and start repeating things to themselves. Sometimes people with anxiety responses or panic attacks will physically run around like we see in this uh, story, repeating things to themselves. And what I also found interesting and my brain made a small connection to is a, a self-medication for anxiety attacks. And one self-medication that's an unhealthy style for panic attacks is,
0: is drinking alcohol. And so we've got Speedy, and we got his issues. And before we get to reason, I think I'd rather talk about catch that rabbit first. Like, okay, yeah, run around and catch that rabbit. They're, they're actually, a bit more similar. They're quite similar, and I think reason deserves its own um, its own separate kind of discussion. And so for this one, we got Dave, and Dave's issue is that he's got these. Um, He's got these subsidiary robots that he himself controls via positronic fields, which, again, nobody really knows how they work. And so that's where Greg and Mike come in to help troubleshoot problems on these different new technologies. Which they themselves don't know how it works. Right. And it's interesting to consider how the laws are are coming into this because they're kind of a little bit further in the background in this one than they were run around is like this textbook case you know where they have to look at law 1 law 2 law 3 and really break it down whereas they're a little less distinct in this one what's happening is that dave has to follow the orders to get ore and yet when he and his subsidiary robots enter dangerous or high tension situations the the connection is lost or at least the pro, the production connection is lost and Dave starts doing weird stuff with the robots instead of actually doing what he's supposed to do. And mm-hmm. and it's only when human beings come back around that he's able to snap out of that. So what's going on with that? Like, what does that remind us of? Is this the same thing?
1: I would say, yeah. Like, there another anxiety response is just to be overwhelmed and to stop working. I mean, you see this a lot with people who tend to procrastinate Their work because there's (laughs) they're so overwhelmed, eh, eh, they just have to stop.
0: I read this one and I thought this one's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this one's me. So there's like there's got to be like a personality test out there based on the different Asimov robots. Which Asimov robot are you? Yeah, that'd that'd go well on Facebook. Yeah, I'm a Dave. Yeah, (laughs) I think you're a Dave. You're probably a Dave. You should take that test.
1: (laughs) I'm probably a lot more like Speedy because sometimes I get stuck in this loop and I just have to stop.
2: So, yeah, I agree. It feels it feels a lot like uh, an overwhelmed situation, again, with another panic response. And I love that you said procrastination. Um, I even wanted to bring up dissociation. Um, for those who are unaware, dissociation is where you almost completely disconnect the front part of your brain, the neocortical part of your brain. Or another way of saying it is zoning out. If you've ever zoned out, staring at like your phone, and then two hours passes and you're like, oh, wait, I don't remember any of the things I just looked at. That's a minor form of dissociation. A major form would be, I don't know, working with five robots that are also inside your brain (laughs) and not remembering when you're marching for eight hours straight. That's a higher form of dissociation and also a panic response.
1: So really, what needed to be eliminated for Dave to function is he just needed less stimulus.
2: Yeah, that's why shooting one of the robots at the end helps, which I thought was hilarious. He's just like, I don't know if this is going to work. Bam, bam. <laughs> and then it
0: worked. And so when it comes to these different situations, is it safe to say that, like thinking about human experience and human problems, that sometimes our changing and non rigid, like very fluid situations that we enter into, With different changing variables and surprises, like unpleasant surprises. Is that the sort of thing that we run into problems when we look at situations far too rigidly? And when we place unhealthy um, constraints and constructs upon ourselves, that then suddenly we run into problems or situations that really can't accommodate those boxes that we're in? Is that a good way to look at how these? Situations with these robots can relate over to human situations,
1: yeah, I think I would agree with you it is it is really difficult when you go into a situation and you think it's going to be a particular way, and then things just completely do not meet your expectations, and we see especially as people get a little bit older, it's harder to change those expectations, so sometimes. Sometimes as people get older, they really just can't cope with um,
2: anything outside of their box.
1: Yeah, thank you. And, and, and that's a little bit of a choice and a little bit of a biology thing. And, you know, that's one of the things you got to look out for as you grow and change and learn.
2: Yeah, I would agree. It's, it's I, I kind of want to throw the word uh, worldview maturity out there. So if our worldview is like... That's a, two words. Oh, dang, you're right uh got shut down
1: no please keep going
0: <laughs> he can't handle this 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 challenge to the construct that he had set up exactly <laughs> so it 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 shattered I'm me entirely. sorry
1: my existence is a challenge to the construct
2: <laughs> <laughs> no um so like when a little kid we all build constructs to get through the world that's how our brains are designed to work otherwise it's always overstimulating um so when a little kid comes up with their constructs and they find out oh, my construct won't fit this situation, Um, one of two things can happen. They can grow up and learn, or they can build those constructs stronger, those walls stronger, and say, this situation, really warping it, really warping it, and now it fits inside my construct, you know? Um, And what I think we're seeing in these stories is when we warp things, or we get warped, or we break a little to make things fit our constructs.
1: Go ahead. Okay, so I had another thought about robots and why are they having these problems with the three laws? And, you know, I'm a theologian, I'm a scholar, so I've been working a lot right now with the idea of rest and stopping, and that's been really helpful in my personal life because I have anxiety, so sometimes stopping is the little reset I need to kind of get that under control. But um, robots aren't built to rest.
0: Right. They're Ooh. they're
1: not built to be beings, they're built to work and they have a job and that's their entire existence. Yeah. So they don't have this concept of being more than the job. So they're they're you know, they're workaholics, they're they continue to run and run and run. So it is a very easy to get them into these strict boxes and to get messed up because they don't have an option to be anything other than the job.
0: They almost seem like you could look at them as corollaries for kind of our workaholism and our inability sometimes to stop what we're doing. And that's going to lead to breakdown after a little while.
1: Yeah. You know? Well,
2: our world, You're we're Americans, right? So our, our worldview is economic business profit done, period.
1: Well, and you can also look at our politics and look at how they're increasingly um, divided and and increasingly, what's the word I'm looking for, polarized. And, you know, we don't have an ability to stop and listen or stop and kind of, uh, move outside of our boxes. And, And, and in the same way, the robots here don't have the ability to stop and they don't have the ability to think outside their boxes. So, you know, they get stuck in these panic responses.
0: Well, talking about not being able to think outside of a box um, or having a certain box that you kind of inhabit and that's what informs how you go about things, I think that's kind of a good transition point for us to talk about the second story out of these three, which is Reason. Beauty, yeah. Very different story compared to the other two that we've already talked about.
1: Yeah, this one kind of confounded me. I wasn't quite sure what the point was. Oh,
0: I love this one. I think that Cutie is interesting because I don't think he'll please any reader. I think at first we have this picture of Cutie who has decided, I'm going to reason this out for myself. He's been constructed at the particular station by Greg and Mike, and yet he is convinced that that can't be right. And also convinced that things like other planets and that the little dots of light out there on the other side of the window that those are stars and planets that are far away and all this stuff about energy beams. It's all garbage to him. He's like, you really expect me to believe that? Which on the one hand, that's, that's really interesting because we don't have robots yet who have actually behaved like this and talked like this in any of these stories. They're separate stories and, and written over the course of several years. So we do have to expect a little bit of maybe discontinuity in terms of how these robots behave and what their personalities are like. but. This is the first instance that we read of where the robot is actually intellectually challenging human beings themselves, but he decides that, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to think this out for myself. I'm going to reason it out. You expect me to take that on blind faith, and you could almost sense that that could be pleasing to somebody who would, who would be like a skeptic and would say, no, you can't get me to accept this on just your word. I'm mm-hmm. going to figure it out for myself. Yeah. And then after that he he kind of changes tone and now all of a sudden he is he is putting his faith in the master and that is like the reactor of the entire station because he's decided by his reason that he's going to develop this religious faith
2: he gets everyone bowing down. He gets all the robots bowing down to the master.
0: Right. And, and he's the prophet. And they're calling him the prophet. Yeah. And Greg and Mike are trying to convince this guy, no, no, it's just it's just common sense. Can't you see it? And so in that sense, then it's like, well, now who is this character going to upset? Um, I I feel like there's really no no satisfied reader with cutie. And by that
2: do you mean like a religious person won't find a whole bunch of satisfaction with cutie, as well as like a scientific, uh, scientism kind of person won't find a yeah. lot of satisfaction with cutie.
0: I think there's something to dislike for everybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I found this story really interesting because if you're unaware, the greatest theological question of the last century has been are religion and science opposed? And this has been kind of on the table since the Enlightenment. But especially since the Scopes Monkey Trial, we've had this kind of back and forth. And really, where theology is going now is saying, that's a stupid question. Like, they're asking different questions. Science and religion are asking different questions. So science is asking a how question, and religion is asking a why question about reality. So my best friend is a molecular biologist, and I'm constantly asking her questions about things. And she always says to me, Stephanie, science doesn't answer why questions.
0: But I also think there are philosophical issues that come up on the one hand because um, Plato and then there's Aristotle, where to me one of the biggest differences between Platonic and Aristotelian thought is that Platonic thought is kind of based on the idea that your senses don't very accurately represent the truth of things or the reality of things, Mm -hmm. and that there are forms or essences of things that kind of lie beyond what we can actually see, whereas an Aristotelian viewpoint kind of says, no, the senses are generally reliable, and we can trust what we see. And so maybe that's one of the issues here with Cutie, is that he kind of is operating on both of these at different times. that's a
1: good point.
0: I'm really glad you brought it back, because I was
2: getting lost with you, too. So... (laughs) So, I see what you mean, though, where, where Cutie can see the same things as Greg and Mike, but have a completely different result of an answer. Yeah. Like, he looks out the window on the, into the stars and he says, oh, that's just black wallpaper, right? And you poked holes in it. Great. Good for you. Um, and Greg and Mike are
0: losing their minds because they are like, no, we traveled to those stars. Right. And really, that kind of gets down to one of the more important moments in that story when they're trying to crack the answer as to how to get through to cutie and they get to the point where they realize cutie is, is operating according to certain postulates, certain prior assumptions. And, and, and that is what is driving his particular decisions to lock them away and just handle things on his own. And Mike says, well, we need to get to those postulates. And Greg says, no, it's not that easy because postulates are, are are reached they're through they're reached through the dedu- through deduction and they are adhered to by faith and so that gets them to this idea that's presented in the story that if it's just pure reason you can pretty much convince yourself of anything as long as you yeah. have the right postulates we see atrocities
2: happening in the early 1900s on people in and I hate to say it, it's in, it's in the field of psychology Um, And we actually look at Nazi Germany as a lot of, oh man, how could they call that science? But like a lot of Nazi Germany with with devaluing people who are more or less uh, evolved than another person and then eventually killing off a whole bunch of people to, yeah, to encourage more evolution of a perfect man, all of those thoughts came from reasoning American psychologists. Like, American psychology was the basis of Nazi Germany, and we don't like to accept that too much because it's a hard truth, but it's because you can reason anything at all if it's just reason. And Americans liked it a lot because they needed a reason to put black people underneath them. And then Nazi Germany was like, ooh, that's fun, let's do it. And they just took it to the worst extreme. So, reason alone is very, very dangerous, and I think that's a this is a fun Exploration in Cutie because the way it ends is the only thing that keeps Greg and Mike okay with this situation is that Cutie still has the first law just impressed into his brain. So he's still operating the machine and sending the beams out in a safe manner. Um, Cutie thinks it's because of his religious ferv- fervor. Mike and Greg think it's because of the first law, but I think we're left hanging with this. I don't know which reason it is why he's doing this, but he's doing it.
0: Right. There's this difference of perception of reality, really, between Cutie on the one hand and Greg and Mike on the other. And on the one hand, it kind of raises this question, if it gets the job done, does it really matter? Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's kind of a, a weird, uncomfortable question for me to ask, because I can't really say... That my answer to that is, eh, sure, just let it be whatever it is because if it gets the job done, you know.
1: Well, it depends on what your priority is. If your priority is getting the job done, which that's what they have robots for, then sure, like let Cutie have his own why and he'll do the how your way and just move on. But if you're not prioritizing the job itself, like what you're talking about with um, forcing human beings to evolve, like obviously you want to prioritize human life and human comfort over the job. The job. Exactly. So you wouldn't say if it gets the job done then it's okay.
2: You know, while we're talking about this it actually reminds me of another world view that I haven't wrestled with yet and I kind of want to represent some of our audience with it is um universalism. Right? I think a universalist might read this passage and go or passage this story and go Oh, so this is proof. See, they're all getting the job done. All paths lead to nirvana or paradise or what, or the job getting done. So it doesn't matter which path you take, just get down
0: your path. Um, so do you think that's what he's saying in the writing of this particular story?
2: I have no idea. I don't want to put words in Isaac's mouth. And honestly, this 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 reason one is so complex with so many layers I I daren't say anything on Asimov's behalf other than faith faith and reason aren't too different I think is the biggest thing he's trying to say is that fair what do you guys think I like it right sounds good the first-
1: I guess as far as worldview goes, as far as kind of wrestling with how these stories speak to us today, probably the biggest thing for us to kind of talk about is technology that is developing kind of faster than we understand it and tech that moves faster than our ethics. So that kind of happens in our world today. But at the same time, like I have a professor who was a bioethicist and his job was to be in the hospital. And every time that an ethical question came up, he and a group of people would wrestle through the ethics of it and make sure the right decision got made. And I think a lot of time that had to do with um, people dying or um, what to do with various organs and, th- and things like that. So we do have this built into our system a little bit but it doesn't seem like they have it built into their system.
0: You mean robots?
1: Yes, it doesn't seem like there are robot ethicists. Right. Hanging out.
0: Well, to talk first about the the pace of technology, I mean, that is definitely still true today. And it's not just about like a new iPhone coming out so quickly that you can't you don't have time to buy them all or something. The pace of of technology development, it gets scary particularly when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Because machine learning takes paths that are so fast that we can't quite understand sometimes how the AI got to its particular end goal. Like you can give it an instruction to do something and then after it does it, it's not so easy to just look back and say, yep, here's how it did it. There have been times where, I mean, this this is, this is can have like simple implications for like mm-hmm. when you're on Amazon and um and you're shopping around and suddenly something is way more expensive than it was the other day um and that's not always just a human being on the other end like sometimes prices on websites shift algorithmically based on things like demands and and other products and other various factors and sometimes it's like whoa where did that just come from mm-hmm. and even the and even the artificial intelligence isn't going to be able to explain it to you or there have been times where differing algorithms um, in stock market situations, like differing algorithms on other sides of the country, ha- or other sides of the world, have kind of banged heads with each other, and suddenly there's this inexplicable drop in the stocks that no one can understand that lasts for several minutes, and then it's back up to normal. And so these are like serious, like financial implications based on how we have employed computers and technology to handle things um, in life situations that we can't control a lot of the outcomes sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar with,
2: uh, I'm not as up to date on tech today. I actually have no ability to even begin to keep up with tech today. So so I have a hard time in, entering into, well, what's the harm? What's the harm? What's the harm? Um, until I started seeing I've read a few police reports about how um, kidnappings could happen because a kidnapper could find out where different people are, who they're surrounded by because of Wi-Fi locations on phones and being hacked into. And like, how do you prevent that hacking? Uh, Well, no one really thought about that because the tech was moving faster than the ethics were or something like that.
0: Right. And the other one, the other part of that would also be things like legislation concerning technology. Yeah. Yeah. That's another part that really, really lags behind the development.
1: Yeah, and with law too, sometimes law changes to reflect the society. Like, sometimes law comes after society has already decided this is right and this is wrong, um, especially when you see kind of Supreme Court decisions. So so sometimes the te- the technology just keeps right on moving even while you're asking ethical questions you know, four steps back.
0: And societally, we're also not incredibly well-primed to slow down and and talk things through uh, before we we get the thing that we want to get. No, we're American. We want it now, and that's all that matters.
1: And sometimes it's hard to foresee the ethical questions rather than react to ethical questions. So if you're consistently reacting, it's harder to prevent future problems. So, for example, in these three stories, nothing super ethically sketchy happens to Greg and Mike, other than the fact that they're constantly, their lives are in danger. Like, they keep endangering their lives. And, like, I, that's not a great situation for a job. I mean, I understand that there are obvious jobs in our world where people are consistently endangered. But, you know, maybe that's a question you should be asking if you're putting, your test pilot's in danger. Or another good example of this would be last episode we talked about childcare and robots and brought up those ethical questions, and it doesn't seem like they have someone built in at US robots to ask those questions and say, Is this really something a robot is suited toward?
0: Well, they do have a robo psychologist, don't they?
1: I'm not sure psychology is the same as ethics. No, it certainly it's not. attempts to be that, but it-
2: yeah, pop, pop psychology, American, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm throwing America under the bus way too many times today. Popular psychology around the world can sometimes step the boundary from science into ethics, into philosophy and worldview without blinking an eye, and I think that's wrong.
1: Well, because psychology is the child of philosophy and hard science. It just hangs yeah, out it's, in the middle it's a, there.
2: Yeah, and you have to understand that. But,
1: but it doesn't do the full job
2: it's it's like a it's like a science of that asks how that's also pointing with the other hand towards why but it it's pointing at why it doesn't actually get you there
0: but we are getting into some interesting things that are going to relate to the next episode, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to ethics because the next uh section that we're going to cover is going to get way more into the questions of what are these robots that we're dealing with? Like, what are what is their value? Um, and what are we doing when we're messing with the brains of seemingly sentient entities? Dun, dun, duh. Yeah, and so I'm saying all that once as Once per a,
2: episode, I'm gonna get this in once per episode.
0: I, <laughs> I'm saying that as a way to kind of transition us, I think, out of our discussion for now. So I think that kind of rounds out our talk on these three chapters. So we hope that you have enjoyed listening to this and thought about it along with us. We hope that you're reading along with us, and we want to encourage you that if you want to read along but you haven't been able to yet, you can always just hit the pause button and come back later and come back to us. But we do want people to engage in conversation with us and discuss their thoughts as well. So you can do that in several ways. You can go to our website which is galaxypodcast.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes. You can get subscribe links, but if you want you can hit the contact button there at the website and send us an email and sh- and share your thoughts with us. You can also go to our Facebook page, Galaxy Podcast. And you can send us a message there and see what we're up to. But we're done for today. So until next time, I'm Jason Stark.
1: I'm Stephanie Yunker.
0: And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy.
1: See you next time.
0: Bye, everybody.